so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Okay, and for our next story, it comes to us from Peach Bowl News. The Respect for Marriage Act. Oh, Peach Bowl? No, Peach Bowl. Punch Bowl. Okay, I'm like, wait a minute. Is there <laughs> it's a- not a football game. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me on this monumental week at the ERLC is our newly minted president of the ERLC, Brent Leatherwood. Was that a, like a party favor? It was a party favor. I couldn't stop <laughs> at the store and get one. So I just had to. <laughs> That's go. my celebratory party blower. That's true. Yes. Well, welcome thank to you the for podcast, that. Mr. President. Thank you for that lovely intro and welcome. How, I, I mean, it is every week, but it's somehow more special this week. How are you feeling as uh, this first podcast duty ship of your Official presidency. I got to tell you, I'm feeling tired. I bet you are. Uh, I, the The adrenaline rush has certainly vacated the system, yes. in them, and it is it is crashing. But it's a uh, it is a. I mean, to be serious, it is a incredible moment. And when I spoke to our trustees earlier this week, I found a uh, some remarks that Billy Graham had given uh, when when he was accepting an award. And uh, he said, you know, I certainly do not feel worthy of this, but I, I accept it in the name of the Lord that I serve. So I am both honored and uh, humbled because when I think through the various individuals that have held this position uh, over the uh, century of history of this, uh, of this commission, it's an incredible company to be in. And so that's honest, right out of the heart feelings. Well, in I love giving you a hard time, but in you all do. seriousness, congratulations. You are the man for the job. Your staff knew it before you knew it. Um, and I can't wait till we can talk more about the story of how this came to be, because as Lori Bova was sharing, she's the chair, chair, yeah. chairwoman of the trustees, and she was on the search committee. It just is truly a God story, how the Lord just worked everything out. It's just clear that the Lord's hand was in that. So we are so glad to have you. So I, I've been told uh, it, it wasn't, that there just wasn't a place this week while we had our annual uh, trustee meeting. 
but I, I've been told that they have a bunch of little different stories from the search committee and, and all of its time over the, the last 15 months or so. And they're eager to share those little stories with me of the way that, that God was just using things and, and aligning events and, and conversations and, and hearts. And so I, I can't wait to hear some of that. But, you know, I, I look at Lori's past year as the chair of our board. And you want to talk about God's hands being all over this. I mean, people know our our staff. Obviously, we were thrust into a, a, a situation that none of us really expected. And of course, as with any transition, uh, there there has been turnover, and so we've 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 had some dear friends who the Lord has called away to work in other organizations and other ministries, and to have as our chair of our trustee board. Lori Bova is, I mean, that's just evidence that that God had his arms around this the entire time because she is by nature such an encouraging and wise voice. And if there were ever at any moment I felt like, uh, you know, the, the team's running a little low on energy or enthusiasm, all I had to do was figure out a way to get Lori Bova to be a part of a, a staff event or to uh, shoot us an email, which she was all, all has always been more than willing to do. And you want to talk about someone that, that gets our team going again. It, it is her. And so I, I am so thankful that she is our chair for another year. Our trustees reelected her and deservedly so. Kevin Smith is our, our vice chair uh, again for another year, which gosh, what a what an incredible asset to have on your board, and what a wonderful, wonderful uh, messenger of the gospel. Uh, he serves as a, a pastor down in South Florida. And then they just uh, elected as our new secretary, Juan Sanchez. Who is a gator, by the way. So we this is a family podcast. We don't, we don't need <laughs> to talk about such things. Uh, but uh, Juan Sanchez, he's a pastor in Texas. Uh, he is, I think, I should have asked him this to clarify. I think he's still chairman of the board, actually, of, for TGC. What a wonderful, wise, gifted group of officers that we have on our trustee board that I'm going to get to rely upon as we get the, the RLC reestablished in a permanent fashion. So I'm, I'm just so excited about that. Our, our trustee board is such a gift. And I learned this little bit of history in the moment. I'm the first person to be elected president by our board unanimously since 1960, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, Dr. Valentine's uh, nomination. So, wow. Uh, That's pretty amazing. <laughs> that was yes. not what I expected. And uh, But again, I'm so grateful to our board for that Gosh, what a what a foundation of confidence to to begin with. Absolutely. Yes. They are all of those people you mentioned and then more are top notch and they love the Lord and that's what matters most. And we are so thankful that the Lord has blessed their labors, volunteer labors, thank you very much, over these last sixteen months or however long it's been. It feels like an eternity actually. But you should get those stories uh, that they have for you. I want to hear them, but write them down for your family so your family mm. can know, have that history in the future when they remember how the Lord has worked in the Leatherwoods life. Yeah, absolutely. 
So how are you spending your uh, first couple days here, eating kava and drinking Starbucks, probably? (laughs) Definitely consuming a lot of coffee. I went to uh, our kids' uh, school this morning, went to chapel, and um, we had run out of coffee at the house, and so I was thankful that they had nice hot coffee ready to go. Uh, no, these these first couple days, I mean, so we've had our, our trustee meeting, and so now that we're, day that we're recording this is is actually my first time to just kind of sit back and, and breathe a little bit. But my plan is to call through uh, various pastors in the SBC and really just to pick their brains, um, because I, I definitely have uh, the outlines of a vision uh, for our organization, but I want to call on some pastoral wisdom and see what pastors think and see what they believe may be needed to see if, if my vision lines up with uh, some of their feedback. And so that's, that's really what I'm going to be spending uh, the next few days uh, doing. And I've got a great opportunity to do it in person uh, next week because the SBC Executive Committee, uh, they're having their trustee board meeting. Gosh, talk about a great a uh, group of, of pastors and ministry leaders that will be coming in for, for that uh, entity. And so getting to interact with them and, and getting some of their feedback. So that's, I'm essentially taking the next little season here to just listen and really hear what uh, what our pastors say, because that's, uh, that's the group of individuals we're here to serve first and foremost. You know, I want to take a step back and realize this isn't, this isn't my commission. Uh, this is a commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, we've been here for uh, over 100 years, and I want to make sure that I am creating a foundation to ensure that it is here for another 100 years. And I think the best way to do that is to, to listen to our pastors. And so that's, that's at least at the outset. Oh, and finding an executive assistant. Uh, which yes. which our team uh, will say, yay! I think, yes, I think you need one of those <laughs> <laughs> badly. Yes. And maybe your executive assistant could remind you before you head home to buy some coffee yes. for your home. <laughs> You're going to need it. Uh, well, that's what you just described is why you are the man for the job in this moment and in this hour. So we are... Also thrilled. I'm thankful for the spirit of unity among our staff and trustees. It was just a fun day of celebrating when that that vote came down and that announcement was made. So we're going to celebrate you for just a little bit, and then we're going to uh, keep you humble there and you uh, yeah. bring you back down to reality. Well, and I do want to say, I you know, you mentioned that that spirit of of unity that's alive and well with our team and, and our board. I think it is reflective of when I look out across our convention of a wider spirit of cooperation. Now, look, you, you get on social media, and, and of course, there, there will be some individuals that have various opinions about anything under the sun. But I think in the main, there is a renewed spirit of cooperation that is out there amongst uh, our fellow Baptist brothers and sisters. And... I want to tap into that because I, th- I think we all have realized in this culture uh, that is very confused and in some instances very antagonistic towards us, we are actually stronger when we are leaning into that cooperation. And I, I've said this in a number of different instances, but our churches, our state conventions, our entities, we are actually stronger when we realize we're autonomous but when we rely on each other, when we are interdependent upon one another, uh, 
we actually are, are stronger and uh, more resilient and able to take uh, those uh, buffeting winds uh, from culture. And so I, I, I really think that's this new era that we are slowly getting into. I think people are tired of continual arguments with one another and realizing that we agree on the essentials, and that's what matters. So, yeah, I, I think that's what we witnessed a little bit of with our trustee meeting. Well, and I do pray that the Lord would usher us into a season of unity because a season of unity born out of love. Yes. Because certainly that's how the world knows that we are Christ's disciples. Right. Well, and there and there and look, there's room. There is room within Baptist unity for there to be disagreement on, you know, approaches or positions or or, or whatnot. Unity does not mean unanimity or uniformity. No, no, we, we cooperate and we have ministries that are, are ministering in all sorts of different communities and contexts. And, and, and so that's the reality. So I think you're right about that for sure. Well, we look forward to what the next years of your tenure will hold. And right now we want to go into what's been happening lately and what the ERLC has been talking about. And I'm going to mention a couple of pieces And the first one, we're so I'm going to give you the initial story, and then we're going to come back in the culture section, and Brent is going to address the latest updates. So this is a piece by our policy staff out of D.C., and it's an explainer about Yeshiva University case and its implications for religious liberty. So this really is an important case. From the explainer, Yeshiva University, it's a modern Orthodox Jewish center of higher education. And so the university was petitioned by a student LGBT group called YU Pride Alliance for recognition. And of course, the university declined because they argued that doing so would violate their mission as a religious training center, even though they want students of all sexual orientations and gender identities to be welcomed. The university also wants to uphold their understanding of the Torah and its traditional understanding of gender and sexuality. So what this student group did was petition lower courts in New York to force the university to recognize their group. So Yeshiva University filed an emergency appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, and last Friday, Justice Sotomayor stayed the New York ruling that would have forced them to violate their sincerely held religious beliefs. And like I said, in the culture section, coming up next, Brent will give an update on the latest happenings there. But in this explainer, our policy staff lay out the implications of what what this would do for religious liberty if this university was forced to recognize this LGBT group. And it would not be good. It would cause our Southern Baptist seminaries to have to potentially recognize groups that do not line up with our biblical beliefs. And so we we have filed a brief in the case. We are watching the case. We are actively advocating for the recognition of Yeshiva University's religious liberty. Right. We, we there is an important update to this case that that just occurred last night. We'll get to that in the culture section. Why is this important though for for Baptists? Because we're talking about an Orthodox Jewish university. It, it, it is precisely because it is an Orthodox Jewish university. That means it's a, it's a religious institution, and it has certain deeply held beliefs that govern uh, the activities and the education uh, that goes on at this particular institution. 
And there is a club that goes against those particular beliefs. And that club is wanting uh, Yeshiva University to officially recognize it. And so if it were to grant that official recognition, the school would then be going against its own deeply held beliefs because the state is, in this instance, the state of New York is, is requiring them to do so. And we believe, as Baptists, that is an inappropriate move uh, for the state to make. And, and so that's why we are engaged. That's why Southern Baptists should care about this, and, and frankly, anyone uh, who is concerned about church and, and state conflicts. And the other piece I wanted to share with you is a piece by our staff, and it's titled, Why Christians Should Oppose Gambling. And I want to read just the beginning paragraphs that give the staggering numbers of what people spend on gambling. Last year, Americans spent a record amount of money on gambling. Casinos raked in $92 billion in 2021, with $53 billion going to commercial casinos and $39 billion to Indian tribal casinos. Commercial sports betting also generated revenues of $4.33 billion, while Americans spent $105 billion on state lotteries. When you consider the statistics of who, how many people win those, betting on horse racing also brought the industry $12 billion. And those are categories of legal gambling. Americans spent a total of $213 billion. That's the same amount of money that Americans spent on fantasy sport leagues, movie tickets, live concerts, amusement parks, recreational books, video on demand, sporting events, and consumer video games combined. It's even more money than the entire world spends on pet care, which, you know, pets are the thing these days. So the more that I learn about especially legalized gambling, and I've heard it called problem gambling, the more concerns I have because it is predatory. And people that are often spending their money on gambling are people who do not have the money to lose on gambling, and it affects their families. And so our staff just addresses how the Southern Baptist Convention has addressed gambling since 1890. Mm. The SBC has formally expressed its opposition to legalized gambling. Over the course of more than 100 years, the convention has adopted 14 resolutions on this issue. The most recent was passed in 1997, and it calls on all Christians to exercise their influence by refusing to participate in any form of gambling or its promotion. In addition, the resolution urges political leaders to enact laws restricting and eventually eliminating all forms of gambling and its advertisement. And that's because of its predatory and destructive nature. So in this article, which I would encourage you to read, there are several reasons to think through on why we should oppose gambling. It violates biblical principles, contributes to crime and corruption, disrupts the economy, destroys lives, hurts innocent people, and defies justification. And then there are some suggestions toward the bottom about things that we can do to help fix the problem, but they have to be comprehensive. And ultimately, we want to be people who seek the welfare of the cities we live in mm. and seek the good of our neighbors. And the more and more you learn about legalized gambling and problem gambling, uh, the more you see how it really destroys lives more than helps them. This Sunday is actually anti-gambling Sunday throughout the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, that's why we wanted to recognize it this week on our site. Yeah, I, well, th I mean, th that last part in particular is why Christians should stand in opposition to gambling, uh, because it does harm families, and it does 
take advantage uh, of those around us. It undermines community and relationships in nearly every form or fashion that comes out. I, I'm actually surprised that to read in this that the last time that we had a resolution was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. That feels like that's a ripe area uh, for someone to sponsor a resolution at our our upcoming convention in New Orleans. Uh, it, it would probably be appropriate uh, given the prevalence of gambling now on our phones and, and all that for the Southern Baptist Convention to weigh in on. Well, especially in light of online gambling and sports betting. Yep. Jason Thacker, our colleague, has a pretty extensive article on this that was widely shared throughout Southern Baptist circles that we will link to that would be help, could be helpful fodder for somebody who was sponsoring a resolution. Right. If there's an intrepid uh, member of our audience out there that's looking for a resolution that could be constructive and helpful, this is certainly an area that's that's ripe for that. Uh, you mentioned that our first resolution on it was back in 1890. Ironically, that was uh, that was about the time frame where there was a special committee that many folks out there kind of see as a precursor to the ERLC. For a limited time there, for a few years, there was a there was a special committee uh, that was called the Citizenship Committee. And it had a brief that in some ways was a preview of what was to come with the Temperance Committee, the eventual Christian Life Commission, and and now the URLC. So that's interesting. Also, you said um, something interesting in that, you know. I frequently say interesting things. Well, you said pets are now the thing. As if this is kind of a more recent development, you seem to ignore the thousands of years where, for example, dogs have been known as man's best friend. <laughs> pets are the thing. I, I'm talking about pets outpacing children. You know, like, <laughs> what, did, haven't I heard in D.C. that there's more pet stores, pet accoutrement stores than <laughs> child clothing like little, stores? Little little doggy booties. Little and, booties and, and, sweaters and sweaters for Fifi. Yes, because, <laughs> because people, people, many people are choosing pets over children. Yes. So that's what I mean by that. Well, there you go. And I think you are following suit because Lottie has overtaken your family's Instagram. Well— well, and and look, now, if you have a dog, a gift. yeah, I was gonna say, if you have a dog named Lottie Moon, it should take off that's over right. your uh, family's uh, <laughs> <That's> Instagram. <right>. <laughs> and listen, I need to be clear: pets are a gift; they are a gift from the Lord, absolutely, and I do not deny that. We have plenty of other articles on our site, which I say every week. One that um, I would encourage you to check out too is it's actually. Throughout the SBC, Children's Missions Day is being recognized on Saturday, which I actually did not realize. So we have an article about that on our site. But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. And now it's time for the culture section. Mr. President, why don't you let us know what's been happening this week? Well, thank you for that. Madam Editor. My loyal subject is what you should say. No, that's a that's more of a term from a monarchy. Oh, we we live in a republic. Okay. Yep. Dear citizen, that's what you <laughs> mean. <laughs> All right. So this first story comes to us from the SCOTUS blog website, and uh, it is that important update that we previewed earlier about the Yeshiva University case, and it says the court rules against. Yeshiva University Appeal. Five days after Justice Sonia Sotomayor temporarily put on hold a New York State court ruling that directed Yeshiva University to approve an official Pride Alliance student club 
the full Supreme Court reinstated the state court ruling for now and directed the university to go back to the state courts to try and obtain relief. But a dissent by four of the court's conservative justices indicated that the student club's victory could ultimately be short-lived. Justice Samuel Alito wrote that if the Supreme Court were to take up the case on the merits, the university would likely prevail on its claim that recognizing the LGBTQ group would violate its religious beliefs. The story continued, the five-justice majority acknowledged that the case could end up back before the justices after the university jumps through the procedural hoops. The majority's brief order went out of its way to note that the university may return to the Supreme Court if it does not obtain a quick ruling in its favor from New York's appellate courts. Although they did not publicly record their votes, the four-justice dissent means that the two remaining conservative justices, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, must have joined their three liberal colleagues, Sotomayor and Justices Elena Kagan and Ketanji Brown-Jackson, in order to deny the university's request. The order denying the request indicated that the majority saw procedural problems with intervening in the dispute at its current stage. So this is largely procedural uh, reaction by the court. So there will be some that are kind of frustrated that the, the court is, is taking uh, this approach. And, and I, I agree with that. Uh, it, it is frustrating. But there is a bit of, of logic here uh, from the court's perspective. Essentially what they are saying is Yeshiva University uh, has a valid point here. Uh, Yeshiva University has not pursued the routes for appeal that are still available to it at the state level. And so they're they're basically saying, Yeshiva, you're correct here in raising concerns about this. Uh, and at the same time, you also have the ability to continue to appeal this. And they've kind of signaled here that if they don't get the the ruling that is favorable towards them, they may return to the Supreme Court. And, and so it's... It is is very much a procedural and and technical uh, return of this back to Yeshiva University and the state courts of New York. And if if I were a judge or a justice at the this, the court level in in New York, I probably would would see this and say, okay, they're telegraphing here that Yeshiva needs to be uh, given the relief it is it is requesting here, because again, to move forward having to officially recognize this club would be a violation of, it, of its deeply held beliefs. And so I, I think ultimately uh, this works out in favor of Yeshiva, but obviously this particular action is, it's not a pleasant one because it means additional legal hurdles will need to be pursued. But again, I, I do, what I suspect will happen is eventually uh, Yeshiva will, will not be forced to recognize this club in any sort of long-term permanent fashion. That's a helpful explanation because I think if you just see the headline, the initial headline, it, like you said, it seems like bad news. But then when you actually read below the headline, you find out that, okay, it's not as bad as it seems and hopefully this is going to be a favorable outcome. Yeah, I mean, anyone who has either watched or been a part of the, the court system in our nation, they, they know that those wheels turn fairly slowly. And so in that sense, that's what's going to be frustrating about this. Uh, they're, they're, 
it may be that Yeshiva uh, is forced to give some sort of temporary recognition, but again, I, I would imagine they will be litigating that very quickly and seeking uh, relief from that. So, like I said in the earlier section, it's something we need to be paying attention to. As you mentioned, we we filed a brief uh, supporting uh, Yeshiva University's emergency appeal along with multiple other organizations out there that care about religious liberty. So we, we are not going to remain silent on this, uh, and I expect that we will have additional opportunities uh, to engage on, be, on behalf of the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay, and our next story comes to us from Punchbowl News. It's an outlet, a very good outlet, actually, out of Washington, D.C., and it says the Respect for Marriage Act vote is possibly delayed to the lame duck session of Congress after uh, the November elections. So from the report, it says, a Senate vote on same-sex marriage is in doubt as supporters have been unable to round up enough backing from Republicans to overcome a GOP filibuster. Instead, floor action on this issue may end up being pushed into the lame duck session if both sides truly want to pass the measure. Supporters of the bill had originally wanted Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to take initial procedural action on it this week, teeing up a vote on final passage for next week. But there aren't 10 GOP votes for the measure right now, and some Republicans privately believe there won't be before Election Day. The House passed this measure with 47 Republican votes in July. Senator Susan Collins of Maine, the lead Republican on the same-sex marriage bill, is now doubtful a compromise bill gets filed this week. When we caught up with Collins today, she acknowledged that the process of finalizing a religious liberties amendment designed to win GOP support has been slower than she wanted. Collins said there's been, quote, a lot of back and forth between Republicans who have suggestions to tweak the amendment language. Quote, this process is taking longer than I would have anticipated. We had a draft amendment, Senator Tammy Baldwin and I, last week that was pretty well done. But as we started talking with individual senators, they all had suggestions. Collins does believe these GOP senators are bargaining in good faith despite the failure to come up with 10 votes so far. So uh, we have talked about the Respect for Marriage Act previously, um, especially when it passed the House and was sent over to the Senate. Uh, we obviously uh, have uh, major concerns about this uh, because it will have the effect of enshrining the Obergefell uh, same-sex Supreme Court decision into law. At the same time, though, we have to take a step back and, and realize this does not change anything from, from that decision. It does add a, an extra hurdle in terms of moving the state back to recognizing what true marriage is uh, between one man and one woman in a covenant for life. But it's interesting here uh, that it seems like there's not enough support in the Senate. When, when the bill was initially uh, sent over from the House and it looked like the Senate may schedule it, there was talk of the whispers, I should say, rumors of more than enough uh, Republicans supporting it. But without saying too much, there have been a number of organizations that have quietly been talking to Republican senators and uh, reminding them of uh, the, the definition of marriage that we believe and helping to uh, just strengthen their resolve uh, about protecting marriage. And so, uh, those conversations are ongoing, and uh, potentially uh, a result of that is that this bill will not even be taken up in the next few weeks. We certainly at the ERLC, we have communicated, we sent a letter to every Senate office, and so we're, we're going to continue uh, being a part of those discussions and, and making sure 
that those senators know where the Southern Baptist Convention stands on this on this matter. Hopefully, this will just fizzle out because it seems like there was a lot of momentum behind it at first, and then it got pushed back to September, and now it just seems like, okay, maybe December. So good news would be that it just continues to fizzle out and that the Senate will not vote on this at all once Congress adjourns. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Congress will adjourn. Um, They'll come back for a lame duck after the elections. But if it just appears that the support's not there, it certainly is feasible that Congress will just end up going out of session completely and not taking up this bill. Well, Brent, before we finish up, I just wanted to mention two pieces of cultural information. The first is uh, less important, but still interesting nonetheless. And that's that Roger Federer just announced his retirement from professional tennis. The greatest of all time. The the goat. Bah, man. <laughs> he is retiring. But listen, this is from ESPN. He's retiring at the age of 41. That's, that's the age that you do you, things. Yes, because what we have learned is that Dr. Land... President, previous president of the RLC, took on the presidency at 41. He was named at 41. Russell Moore was named at 41, and you, too, were named at 41. Yes. And now Roger Federer is retiring at 41. 41 is the year to do big things. Well, don't you feel bad about your life that you're not retiring at 41? Instead, you're just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry about your luck. Just kidding. So he's retiring because of a series of knee operations. He's closing a career in which he won 20 Grand Slam titles, finished five seasons ranked number one, and helped create a golden era of men's tennis. Also, he has played more than 1,500 matches of tennis over his 24 years, which is pretty incredible. No wonder he has knee problems. That'll do it to you. Yeah. Well, you know, I hate to see him retire because uh, he he has been such an incredible tennis player and, and particularly at Wimbledon. I've actually, Wimbledon is basically the tennis match that I, I kind of consider appointment television. I, I love the history of Wimbledon and actually seeing the players on the grass court. But it brings to mind Federer versus Nadal in Wimbledon or at Wimbledon in 2008. Um, they met in the final it was the longest final in Wimbledon history, four hours and 48 minutes. And Nadal prevailed, uh, which is just incredible because uh, Federer was the better uh, grass court player. But it's, many people call it the greatest tennis match of all time. And I got to tell you, I agree with that. I don't know much about uh, tennis history. That's more my wife's specialty because she was a college tennis player. But I remember thinking, my goodness, we are watching these two just legends go at it. And so, uh, good job, Federer. Incredible tennis player, Roger. Yep, and an incredible legacy. And then the last piece of news is, a week ago on Thursday, I was recording with Jason Thacker, and we talked about the queen being sick and her doctors being concerned for her health. And then we, the news broke that she died at the age of 96, and so we obviously removed that portion from the podcast. But the queen has died. There are 70-year-olds have not known anyone else as queen over there in the UK. So it's just, it's the turning of a page in history. It just feels like the turning of an era. It feels like a much bigger moment than a ruler dying. I mean, it's just a, it's just a massive moment. Her funeral will be held on September 19th next week. And, of course, there is a 
a lot of pomp and circumstance that's happening before then. So I just watched the other day as the uh, the royal procession to Westminster Abbey, and she's laying in state in Westminster Hall. And her, of course, King Charles was processing behind and her children and then uh, Prince William and Prince Harry. And it reminded me of Princess Diana's funeral when these two young boys were marching behind their mom. And this it was almost exactly 25 years ago. And so it was pretty somber moment. And there have been cues lines hours long for people to come just go past the queen and pay their respects. Like yeah. I think I've heard 30 hours long waiting in line. My parents are actually over there right now and they've been no sending way. yeah, they've been sending pictures of the funeral procession. They showed yesterday the carriage carrying her coffin draped with the flag and the royal crown uh, atop it and I've never seen that. That's pretty incredible. Uh and they were just just a few feet away from it because wow. they, they had gotten to the front of the line on the procession. And so they said they had waited there for six hours. Wow. That's pretty incredible. Yes. But they were very close to William and Harry. So. Wow. Yeah. And uh, gosh, you mentioned there are 70-year-olds who have never... There's, there's some statistic. I want to say it's like 80% of the British public have not known any other monarch beyond Elizabeth, which is just incredible. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking through, you know, what did her life represented. She, she, she witnessed and was a part of so much history. And um, it actually reminded me of one of my favorite speeches in Parliament from a member of Parliament named Danny Kruger. Uh, this, was, this was back in 20, 2020. It was right before COVID started. And it was in the run-up to the UK leaving the European Union. So it was in that kind of Brexit context. But Kruger spoke to a particular point in that. He said, the reason that we are leaving is because there, there's something special about what we have in the United Kingdom. And he was talking about a deeper truth of a feeling at home. And I think there are some parallels there to be drawn from Queen Elizabeth's passing. I think for many of the individuals in the United Kingdom and the larger commonwealth, she probably evokes sentiments of something deeper. And, and I hope that one positive thing maybe to come out of her passing is that it's a reminder to the, the British people that they they actually do have something pretty special in the scope of human history with their monarchy. Now, granted, they're they're a constitutional monarch, and and so uh, they are led by a prime minister, and they have elected representatives in in parliament. But the the fact that they have a queen, and now they have a king, I just hope it's a time for reflection because there there was a lot of pundits out there that I was really surprised, actually, in the in the immediate wake of her passing, as they were just, you know, looking for stuff to fill airtime with. There was a lot of just, oh, what does this mean for the Commonwealth? You know, will will there be countries that, that split away or readjust their relationship? And look, maybe that will happen. But I'm hopeful actually that it's it's a moment for people to say, hey, we're we're actually tied together with something just a little bit uh, deeper and, and stronger and, and more lasting 
than maybe meets the eye to outsiders. Uh, that's my hope, at least. And so, I don't know. Maybe there's really no more appropriate way uh, to end this than to say, God save the king. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.